Is this heaven? No. It's Iowa. Shoeless Joe Jackson, the old-time baseball player, asked this question to Ray Kinsella, a hippie-turned-farmer played by Kevin Costner in the movie Field of Dreams. So when the field begins, we get some background about Ray Kinsella. Ray has barely gotten the knack of farming, but he, his wife, and their daughter are making it work in the great corn state. We know that Ray's mom died when he was young, so his dad, a former minor league ball player, raised him with a special affinity for baseball. But Ray and his dad had a falling out, and his dad died before Ray could make it right. So if you know the movie, you know it's an enigmatic and bizarre journey. It's called Field of Dreams because Ray builds a baseball field in the middle of his cornfield. And soon thereafter, Shoeless Joe Jackson, an old baseball player for the White Sox, shows up. And then more other old-time baseball players. But the movie is more than that. Throughout Ray's journey, there is a voice that prompts him not just to build a baseball field, but also to do other strange things, like find a retired author or find an old doctor. These strange things weave others into the story, and they work towards a resolution. And they also test Ray to see whether or not he will keep going down this journey. And the big test becomes when Ray has to decide whether or not to sell his farm. You see, building the baseball field put him on the brink of bankruptcy. So either Ray could sell his farm to the bank or he can lose his farm. And he has two different groups trying to influence him to both of these ends. Right? We, we see his pain-in-the-neck brother-in-law, who works for the bank, comes and urges him to sell the farm. He thinks Ray is delusional, that he's made all of his family drink the Kool-Aid to just stare at an empty field. He can't see these players. So he urges Ray, sell the farm while you can. But then there's another group. There's his family, and there's that retired author, Terrence Mann. They say, Ray, people will come. People will come, Ray. you got to keep this farm. Don't sell it. They can see these players. And they, convince, they try to convince Ray that though the corn harvest will take a hit, there will be a harvest of another kind. Sell the farm, Ray. People will come, Ray. You'll have to watch the movie if you want to know what happens next. <laughs> but if you know the Gospel of Mark so far, you should be familiar with the voices of both of these groups. They show up again and again, and they show up in our passage today. The sell the farm people are those who are convinced that Jesus is delusional. They go so far as to say that Jesus is possessed by Satan himself. This group appears to have the loudest voice, but Jesus says again and again that they will not have the last word. Though opposition to him and rejection of him keep on increasing, there will be a harvest. People will come. And we're going to see this more and more as we walk through Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. You'll find that on page 839 in the Pew Bible. 
And this passage of Scripture is referred to as the, often as the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. And it's, uh, it's a unique passage in the Gospel of Mark because it's one of only two times that Mark takes a break from narrative and he goes into what Jesus taught. And I think the main point or the main takeaway from this passage, and that's hopefully the main point of this sermon, is that in Jesus, the kingdom of God has arrived. And though there is opposition, he calls us to be a part of the harvest. In Jesus, the kingdom of God has arrived, and though there is opposition, he calls us to be a part of the harvest. So when you read Mark 4, 1 to 20, you read all these verses together, you'll find that it's another sandwich construction. It's like what we saw last week. That Mark starts off on one point. He starts off with sort of a bun, and then he leaves it on the plate. He goes to this middle part, and then he completes the bun on top. Right? That's, that's what he'll do again in Mark 4, 1 to 20. So I think it'll be most helpful for us to examine Jesus' words as they're presented, sort of in this sandwich-like structure. So then the three different sections of the sermon will reflect the three different portions of Mark 4, 1 to 20, right? You'll see that printed in your bulletin, all right? I try to use a little bit of an alliteration here. Uh, so verses 1 to 9, uh, the potential results. So this is the actual parable itself. And in verses 10 to 12, we see the purpose of parables. And Jesus answers, you know, why, why is he teaching in this way? And then finally, verses 13 to 20, the plan going forward. So uh, these, that section answers the questions, you know, what are we supposed to do and how are we supposed to think in light of this parable? All right, so we'll read these sections one at a time as we come to them. So first, we see the potential results, the potential results. So we'll pick up in Mark chapter 4, verse 1. And he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things and parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If we just had these verses and no other explanation, what could we know? What could we know at least generally about this parable? Well, before we even get into the actual verses, we can know a couple of things. Right, we can know how Jesus usually tells parables by reading other Gospels. Like we could read Matthew, Luke, and John. In those books, we see that his parables are usually short stories or vignettes that have one main lesson that the hearers are meant to find. Right? Unless he says that 
different components of the parable have meaning, he's usually aiming at one main point in a parable. So it's like the Good Samaritan, right? That main point, though it's a long parable, that he's trying to illustrate is who is my neighbor? That's the question he answers in the Good Samaritan. So before even looking at these verses, we can know how Jesus usually tells parables. Even before looking at these verses, we can know some context, right? We can know literary context, and we can know historical context. In other words, this is in the first chapter of Mark. We know what comes before it, and that'll help us read Mark 4, 1 to 20. So remember, at the end of chapter 3, last week, we see religious leaders from Jerusalem coming to confront Jesus. And unlike in the past, they don't come and ask Jesus about what he's doing. They come and just straight judge Jesus that he's possessed by Satan himself. And as Jesus responds to these leaders, he shows that there are two groups, right? He shows that there are those who reject him, and then there are those who do the will of God, who repent and believe the gospel and follow him. So we know that's the context that Mark 4 comes in. We also, if we do a little bit of just basic research, scholars know what farming was like around Jesus' time in this area of Galilee. And why is that relevant? It's relevant because if we know what farming is like, then this is a peculiar picture of sowing the seed for that time. Because sowing the seed was meant to be orderly. And here, it appears that this sower is just kind of tossing the seed about wherever he wants. He's trying to find good soil wherever he can find it. So even before we touch these verses, we can know several things about how to interpret them. But if we only had these verses and not Jesus' interpretation of them, we could also know the setting of the parable. Right? This comes in the first two verses of Mark 4, verses 1 and 2. We see again, he's in Galilee. Mark loves to talk about Jesus in Galilee, and he loves to talk about Jesus around a big crowd. It seems like every week Jesus is in Galilee, and Jesus has a big crowd around him. That's like the subtitle of the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Jesus in Galilee with a big crowd. But we remember that Galilee isn't meaningless. In Isaiah 9, Isaiah writes that the hope of the Messiah will begin in the region of Galilee. It's significant. And we notice again that with the large crowds that Mark is highlighting Jesus' popularity. Right? Last week, the crowd so in Jesus' business that he can't even eat. This week, the crowd is so pressed up against Jesus that he can't even stand in the land. He has to sit down in the boat and teach to them. And so notice that the nature of the crowd too. Who is Jesus talking to? Is everyone in this crowd a follower of him? No, and and that's going to inform what he tells them. This is a mixed crowd of people. So we'll discover that Jesus talks differently to those who don't accept him versus those who have received him. That's going to inform what he commands them to do. So what we can know, just looking at the context, just looking at a couple verses of of Mark chapter 4, that Jesus is talking to a mixed crowd. And he tells a story of a sower who is looking for soil anywhere he can find it. And he just came off a time in chapter 3 when he splits people into two groups 
based on how they respond to him. Those are a lot of helpful things, even before we touch the actual verses. But in the actual parable itself, Jesus describes four different types of soil. Or or there are four different types of outcomes for the seed that's sown. But when you look at all of them together, you can see that really there are only two outcomes, right? There's the bad outcome, and there's the good outcome of producing fruit. Now, there are religious leaders in Jesus' day who call him Satan. Like, it's pretty obvious. They're bad soil. But Jesus says there's more than one kind of bad soil. And it's the same with the other group, with the other good outcome. He says some produce 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. The good soil looks different. There's a spectrum of it. It's a reminder that Billy Graham is no more saved than the quiet and faithful widow who loves Jesus with all her heart. There's a spectrum of bad soil and there's a spectrum of good soil, but there are only two outcomes. So hearing only these verses and the context around it, we see that Jesus is illustrating that there are only two kinds of people, bad soil and good soil. Now, people may look different within those categories, right? There's room for some nuance, but that's what it ultimately boils down to. And people love to find out who they really are. It just, you know that even because of the popularity of personality tests. You just type personality tests in Google, and you could spend a lifetime filling those things out. Like you could figure out what kind of Disney princess that you really are just by answering a few multiple choice questions. Here Jesus says, the most important thing about who you are is how you are related to him. And it's simple. There are only one of two ways, bad soil or good soil. And the New Testament and the rest of the Bible picks up on that same reality. In fact, if you look at a book like 1 John, it describes those who walk in darkness and those who walk in light. Those who walk in light are those who have their sins covered by the blood of Jesus and who live and love as if that fact is really true about them. And that's why I love uh, gospel tracts, clear gospel tracts uh, like this one. Two ways to live. It unfolds the story from creation, how God created man and, and man is separated from God because of his sin. And now it leads up to the point how God searched out man uh, in Jesus to redeem him and to bring him back to him. And now we have the choice, either we submit to God's rule or we live for ourselves. Two ways to live, bad soil, good soil. I'm going to have some of these as you're going into lunch. If you want one, take one. Read it, give it to a friend. Bad soil and good soil. As Christians, I wonder if we see others in these categories. If we see others the way God sees them. Now, I'm not saying everybody's just a statistic or a project. No, everybody's made in the image of God. But ultimately, there's bad soil and there's good soil. And it might be hard to, to see people that way if you're around them and familiar with them all the time. 
but we need to pray that we would have God's perspective, that we would see people the way God and Jesus sees people. Right, so if we just had verses 1 to 9, we can see that Jesus is emphasizing two different kinds of people. But we can also see what Jesus commands this crowd. Remember, this is a mixed crowd. Not everybody in this crowd has received Jesus. And so what does Jesus command them to do? Well, he gives one command, and he says it in verse 3, and he says it again in verse 9. Listen, he says in verse 3. Verse 9, he says, He who has ears, let him hear. Now, some who are identified as bad soil, they're always going to be bad soil. And, and that's, that's sobering and that's sad. But no matter what kind of soil the seed falls on, it takes time to tell. The point is that there were probably people in that crowd who would be considered bad soil. Right? All of us here, on our own, would be considered bad soil. Yet Jesus tells them to do what? He tells them to listen. He tells them to hear. Friends, on our own, we are all bad soil. It's only by God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit that we are able to receive the seed of the word about Jesus, of him living and dying in our place and rising again, confirming that. And it's by God's grace that that seed of the gospel takes deeper and deeper root in our lives and transforms us from the inside out. So if that's you, if you are the good soil, if you have received Jesus and trusted in him alone, keep being the good soil. Keep trusting Jesus. Keep seeking him. Keep submitting more and more of your life to him. But if that's not you, if the seed of the gospel hasn't taken root in your heart, or if you know someone for whom that's the case, then know that it's not too late. Because what does Jesus command here? Jesus says to listen and to hear. So anyone who is the good soil, who has responded to the gospel, and it's taken root in their lives, they didn't always look like that. You know, many, many of us here would testify that we're surprised that we have ended up sitting here. But the same grace that worked in us can work in anyone. And Jesus says that the first step of that is to listen and to hear. But not everyone listens. Not everyone hears. In fact, some have committed their hearts against listening and against hearing. Jesus knows this which is in part why he begins to speak in parables. You notice the next section of the text, the purpose of parables. The purpose of parables. Pick up in verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside... Everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn 
and be forgiven. I'm not sure who of you here are into poetry. You don't have to raise your hand. I don't want to out you for that. Uh, poetry is one of those things I see that a lot of people love, and a lot of smart people love it. So I've tried to get into it, uh, but I just find that I have a hard time getting it sometimes. You know, every, every kid reads poets like Shel Silverstein and Dr. Seuss, and they love them, right? They're great poets. But it's, it's sort of like any kind of art, whether it be music or painting. You may have heard some new indie rock song that kids like, but you don't get it. You may have seen a painting at the Cleveland Museum of Art that's just like a dot, and you don't get it. When we come to verse 10, we see who Jesus is talking to. Jesus is no longer talking to the large crowd from a boat on the sea. It's just him and those who are close to him, including the 12. They explain to Jesus that they don't get it. They don't get the meaning of the soils. And they don't get why Jesus is using parables at all. Notice in Jesus' response, beginning in verse 11, that he picks up those two groups again. He differentiates between two kinds of people, those inside and those outside. He says that those on the inside have the secret of the kingdom of God. So in light of that, we can ask a couple of questions. How do those on the inside have the secret of the kingdom of God? Well, they've been given it. Who is the one who gave it? It is God who gave it. This is another example in Mark of what's called a divine passive, where the subject isn't stated, but the subject is God. It is God who gave them the secret of the kingdom. And what is the secret of the kingdom anyway? Well, in the Bible, a secret or a mystery is something that was previously hidden but is now made known. And the only way that someone can know it is if God makes it known. So we remember, we keep in mind that the difference between those on the inside and those on the outside are their responses to Jesus. So knowing that, it would appear that the secret of the kingdom of God has something to do with Jesus himself and who he is. That the secret of the kingdom of God has to deal with Jesus' true identity, that he is the son of God, that he is the Messiah who is ushering in God's kingdom. The insiders then are the same ones in chapter 3, verse 35, who do the will of God. They are the same ones who hear and bear fruit like in a parable, because they are in good soil. They are the ones who hear and know the secret of the kingdom of God, who hear and know Jesus. These are the insiders. And we remind ourselves time and again that knowing and hearing are more than just head knowledge. Right, Because even the demons in Mark know the secret of the kingdom of God. Even the demons know that Jesus is the Son of God and is bringing in God's kingdom. So here, those on the inside, those who hear and know and bear fruit, are those who have faith. Those who hear with faith. Those for whom Jesus takes precedence over everything else in their lives. 
So what do Jesus' parables do for those on the inside, those who hear with faith? Well, Jesus' parables are meant to reveal that they are insiders, that they, that they are those who hear and know and believe in Jesus, the secret of the kingdom. Sometimes they don't fully understand, as we see here. But they will always end in faith because they believe in the one who is behind the parable. Right? So the parables for the insiders reveals that they hear and believe in Jesus. But if we keep going in verse 11, for the outsiders, they are left in the parables. Now, it's not that they can't understand the analogies that Jesus is using. Rather, they don't know the secret behind the parables. They don't hear with faith the one who gives the parables. They don't know Jesus. It's like what we read in 1 Corinthians 2.14, where Paul says, they judge what Jesus teaches and regard it as foolishness. For them, what Jesus' parables do is confirm them in their state of rejecting Jesus. Parables reveal who people really are in, in relation to Jesus, and at times, they keep them in that state. That's what Jesus says in verse 12. He's quoting from Isaiah 6. You see in verse 12, and knowing the situation in the book of Isaiah will help us. So in the first few chapters of Isaiah, God puts Israel on trial. Israel had gone through severe rebellion against him. In those chapters, God declares that he's going to judge Israel. And in essence, their judgment Israel's judgment is exactly what they want. It's exactly what they desire. Israel kept going after false and dead gods. So God is going to give them hard hearts like those dead and false gods. That's what we read of in Psalm 115, that all who trust in false gods will become like them. There is one living God. So even though God genuinely reaches out, even in, to Israel in the first part of Isaiah, they still reject God. So here in Mark, Jesus, the Son of God, comes bringing the kingdom full and final salvation. Just like God's extended hand to Israel, the people meet Jesus with rebellion while convincing themselves they're doing what's right. The point is that if you keep on rejecting God, if you keep on saying that you don't want him, eventually God's going to give you exactly what you want. Eventually, one day, God will listen to you. And I don't know about you, but I can look back on my own life and I can praise God that he didn't give me the exact things that I wanted. I know that was God's goodness for me. Friends, we know that sometimes the most dangerous thing for us is the thing that we want the most. Sometimes. So we take a couple steps back. The purpose of parables. We see that they reveal who people really are 
in relation to Jesus. And at times, they will keep them in that state of relationship. Do you see a little bit of tension there? There's tension between human freedom and choice and God's sovereignty, his control over everything, including us and our hearts. So Jesus can legitimately say that we must hear and believe and that the choice to reject him is ours. Yet he can also say that it is God alone who gives the secret of knowing Christ and that God can harden hearts so that they continue to desire what they currently desire. He can hold up both of those things, both of those realities. So the question for us becomes, how do we know if bad soil will stay bad soil forever? How do we know if a heart is hardened against God forever? How do we know that they'll stay in that state? It's like the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that we talked about last week. We don't know. We don't know this side of heaven. This reminds me of a well-known quote from Charles Spurgeon saying it's relevant for how we should operate with this knowledge of not knowing if someone's heart is hardened towards God for the rest of their lives. Spurgeon was a man who affirmed man's responsibility to choose and God's sovereignty over man. He affirmed both of those things. And here's what he says. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. We don't know if bad soil is going to stay bad soil forever. But people who are rejecting God are in danger of getting exactly what they want. So we must have that perspective of Spurgeon. So if parables reveal two groups of people, and we know that those who reject Jesus are in danger of rejecting him forever, then what's the plan going forward? That's the final point of the text. The plan going forward. Pick up in verse 13. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. 
thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Who's Jesus talking to here? He's talking to that same group that approached him in verse 10. And although he laments that they don't fully understand, his explanation is particularly relevant for those who are on the inside, for the insiders. And if the explanation acts as a plan for them going forward, I think we can break it down into three different steps. Three different steps, the plan going forward. One, Jesus says, sow the seed indiscriminately. Sow the seed indiscriminately. You've seen a flower girl at a wedding, right? Flower girl. If she's in danger of stealing the show from the bride, because usually flower girls are that dang cute. And they just, they, they spread the flowers wherever they go. I've seen one flower girl, very careful, very ladylike, take one petal at a time and place it down. And then she gets to the end of the aisle and she's got a basket full of petals. So she just dumps them all at the end of the aisle. <laughs> it's the same with us and the gospel. We don't know where there may be good soil. So we toss the seed everywhere. And yes, first and foremost, this means sharing the gospel with our lips. But you know, Jesus also calls us to love indiscriminately. So in a society where everyone is siphoned off into a own separate group, we, we especially need that, to love indiscriminately. Jesus tells us to love our neighbor, even when our neighbor is our enemy. So love people in sacrificial ways. Be a good friend who does hard things for your friend. Be a good daughter or son or mom or dad or grandmother or grandfather or husband or wife. So we're going to spread the seed of the gospel indiscriminately. We want to find good soil wherever we can. It's more than loving people, but it's not less than loving people. So we sow the seed indiscriminately, and we do that also by loving indiscriminately. Plan going forward. Number two, know your enemies. And we said all, soil, all bad soil is bad soil, but bad soil looks different. There's a spectrum. There are different things that keep people from Jesus, and we need to be aware of what they are. So Winter Olympics still going on. I still got Olympics on the brain. Hopefully this is the last week I talk about the Olympics. Uh, on Thursday, I watched the Men's Super G, a skiing event. And what's unique about the Men's Super G is that the skiers don't know the course before they go down. At least they don't get a trial run. So you feel awful for the first couple guys that go because this is a big downhill event with lots of turns and twists that you may not see coming. So it's kind of cool. You see the first couple guys go, and then the camera goes back to all the other skiers up on top of the mountain, gathered around a TV, looking to see where this guy falls. And that's exactly what happened. The first couple guys, they, they missed a turn. So think of this here. Think of knowing our enemies as us gathered around trying to see where the pitfalls are. Right? So in verse 15, we see the enemy of Satan. He is the one who snatches up the seed that falls on the side of the path. And listen, Satan is more than a cartoon character who wears a red suit and carries a pitchfork. 
In fact, Satan would want you to think he's that weak. The Bible says that Satan is prowling around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And the Bible says also that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He's a deceiver, and he's really good at deceiving. So in light of that, living as Christians, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. Producing fruit, spreading the seed of the gospel, those are acts of cosmic warfare. So friends, we take up the full armor of God, especially the sword of the Spirit that is the word of God. And we go knowing that though Satan is our enemy and is active in the world, we know that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Know your enemies, Satan, verse 15. Verse 16 and 17, we see the enemy of the flesh. That's the seed that falls on rocky soil, and eventually it withers when times get tough because it has no root. Listen, anyone who tells you that being a Christian is easy is lying to you. Being a Christian is not easy. Therefore, we must have roots. So the rocky soil is a warning against lack of substance. So we can see the seeds sprout up quickly all the time. A seemingly positive reaction to Jesus and the gospel. In fact, that's, that's pretty easy to manufacture. And a lot of people, a lot of well-meaning Christians have found ways to sort of manufacture initial sprouts of favor towards Jesus. But if we're not careful, those sprouts will not have good roots. So friends, the rocky soil stands against, it's a warning against working people up into a fervor or creating the best environment for people to make a decision. It's a warning against doing that and getting them to raise their hand while everyone has their eyes closed or to pray a prayer or walk down an aisle. Now, not that those are bad things, but these can confuse people that Jesus is just the next best thing that will make them feel good. And if we're not careful, if there's no substance there, then our flesh, when times get tough of being a Christian, our flesh will say, all right, well, I need to go to the next best thing that will make me feel good. And we'll leave Jesus behind. So this is why we want people to grow in sound doctrine and theology. We want people to have a solid foundation, solid roots of the gospel. So as we see in this passage even, assurance that we are good soil is not the initial sprout, though, though the initial sprout's required. It's not a prayer or a walk down an aisle, but assurance that we are good soil is fruit. It's fruit of a steady trust in Christ and growth in him. That's what gives us assurance that we are good soil. So watch out for the enemy of our flesh. Last enemy, verses 18 and 19, we see the enemy of the world. The enemy of the world. I've heard someone say that the quickest way to choke the church is not to persecute it, but to soothe it with comfort. When I heard that, I was, man, that is true of me that's true of the church in America broadly. The most attractive, the most alluring things in the world. Three big ones, sex, money, power. 
they reveal themselves in many ways. And they cloak themselves in many ways. Greed comes in the form of chasing the American dream. Advertisements show us what we aren't and brood discontentment in our hearts and greed in our hearts and the lust for power in our hearts. Offerings of instant access to pleasure brood sexual immorality in our hearts. That's everywhere. You know, the world has always been like this. These things promise freedom, but they bring slavery. These things promise life, but all these things will fade away. So these are the enemies. Satan, ourselves, and the world. And if you're here, if you haven't trusted in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins and submitted to him as a Lord of your life, then think of the grace of knowing that these things would keep you from that. These things would keep you from the author and maker of life, of you. These things would keep you from eternity with God of the universe. These things would keep you from the treasure beyond price. These things would keep you from the one who offers true hope. And friends, we need hope, especially today. But to those who have trusted in Jesus, who have heard and believed and are insiders, don't think that these enemies no longer affect us. Now, Satan may not have the final victory over us, but he wants us to be as far away from Jesus as we possibly can. He wants us to be as ineffective for the Lord as we possibly can. Now, we know we still deal with the enemy of the flesh. We deal with our sinful desires. We know that we still live in the world and that the world was seeking to pull us away from our Savior. So know your enemies. Last thing, briefly. Be the good soil. Plan going forward. So indiscriminately, know your enemies. Be the good soil. You look at verse 20. It says that the ones who were sown in the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. And a curious thing, all these verbs in this verse are in the present tense. It means they're ongoing. It means that when the gospel's taken root in your life, you continue to be good soil. You continue to hear Jesus. You continue to repent from your sins and believe in him. You continue to bear good fruit. I don't know about you, a lot of days, I don't feel like good soil. I don't feel like good soil. And it's on those days that we have to remind ourselves of our roots. Right? If, if we don't have strong roots, we're going to wither away. So that's why every day we root ourselves in the gospel. That's why every day we remind ourselves that we are children of God, that we are forgiven of our sins, that we stand complete, covered in the righteousness of Christ. We remind ourselves every day that it's finished, that God's grace is sufficient. That gives us roots of joy and peace. And you know what? Praise God that we don't have to be good soil on our own. Praise God for the local church, that we have brothers and sisters who are good soil together. We're just think of it in a practical way. We're going to have lunch afterwards. Think of taking advantage of a time to be around your brothers and sisters, to encourage one another, to continue to be the good soil. Be a good time to sit with somebody and talk about what it means to be a part of the harvest. 
right? What it means, uh, a part of this plan. What's the most challenging part of it? What's the most comforting part of it? And we are the harvest together. That's being the good soil together. People will come, Ray. People will come. Have you? Many things would keep us and others away. And Satan will devise any scheme for us to brush away Jesus' call. We'll tell ourselves that life is just easier and better living for ourselves. The world will say that we're crazy and offer supposedly better things. But we know that the harvest is coming. And he invites us to join it and to spread it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us, for revealing to us the secret of the kingdom. God, thank you for producing in us growth, fruit. Lord, because we have taken hold of Jesus, those who have heard and know him with faith. I pray, God, that they would, that we would increase in our fruit, that we are good soil. And I pray for those who are not confident they are good soil, that they have not heard and known Jesus, would do what Jesus commands in the parable, to listen and to hear. Lord, break down all the enemies that would keep them from that. Do that for your glory. And we pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen.